we are not leaving. The Mi'kmaqs are not leaving. We told the associations, we told DFO, we told anybody that wants to listen, we are not leaving. The government has to do something, and that is to help make space in the waters for us because we're going there, because we have a right to be in those waters. That's Terry Paul, Chief, CEO, and proud member of the Member 2 First Nation in Unamaki, Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia. He's our guest today on the Akamemak Podcast. Danse Tuau and welcome to the Akamemak Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemak is a Plains Cree word for you all persevere. Or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And today, we're discussing an historic billion-dollar deal that sees several East Coast Mi'kmaq communities becoming co-owners of Clearwater, North America's largest producer of selfish, a move that has been described as a monumental step in First Nations regaining our self-sustaining economy. The deal was brokered last fall against the backdrop of violence as the Subanakinik First Nation launched its moderate livelihood fishery in St. Mary's Bay, Nova Scotia. Lobster pounds were torched, Mi'kmaq boats were fired upon, and traps were seized by non-Indigenous commercial fishers. So to learn more about the impact of the Clearwater deal, we're joined now by the man who helped make it happen. Terry Paul has been chief of the Member 2 First Nation in Cape Britain since 1984. He is one of the founders of the National Aboriginal Capital Corporation Association, and he also assisted Donald Marshall Jr. in his successful 1999 Supreme Court defense of the Mi'kmaq Treaty Right to Fish. Chief Terry Paul, a great big welcome to our Akamemak podcast. Thank you, National Chief. Very much appreciated. All right, Chief Terry, again... Congratulations on the Clearwater deal. That's huge, you know, and uh, can you tell us how did that come about? When I look back at it, I believe that it started with developing good relationship with the, with the company. So we've been uh, working with them off and on for, for the past 25 years. So um, within that time, we, we uh, you know, we talked a lot, a lot about the fishery and uh, us, you know, the, the Mi'kmaqs and us particularly in member two to uh, want and to enter the uh, the commercial fishery in a big way, you know, and uh, uh, the, the offshore fishery uh, in this case. And uh, the, the the owners after a while, like, you know, uh, they really didn't have a su- succession plan uh, because uh, their, their kids were, have had other interests, their children and that, and uh, they, they, they spoke to me about that. And uh, they didn't want to just let it go and buy and sell it to just anybody, and particularly uh, a group that would just sell it and uh, and just and and break it break it up in parts. They wanted someone that would keep it together and help uh, sustain it and grow it. And of course, we were of the same mind that. And initially, we were looking at trying to uh, uh, acquire a hundred percent of it. And we knew that we knew that mm. we wouldn't have to, we wouldn't be able to get the financing for that. But uh, at least we would, whoever we uh, uh, had a partner, a partner with that, at least would provide a 
pathway for us to, to do that. And all the groups that we, uh, that we uh, uh, discussed this with, uh, they all walked away, including, including our present partner. But they came back. But they came oh, wow. back, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, they talked to us at length about what their interests were and uh, what their uh, objectives were and their philosophy. And uh, we liked what they had to say and what they came back with. We said, Let, let's let's go 50-50. Said, because we're here for the for the long term, you know, you know, and mm-hmm. of course, the Mi'kmaq, we're here for a longer term. Dad. Like what I've been saying is that. You know, if we were to get to this, the Mi'kmaq will be fishing for the rest of time. And so mm-hmm. that's our long term, you know, and their long term is 30 years or so. So I said, wow, you know, that'd be good. And, and uh, I think that uh, we can work with this. And of course, the proviso was that if they ever were to divest of uh, their interests or selling or selling their their share of it, that we would be the first right of refusal. So, so we accepted that, and we also looked into the company itself. And it's you know it's in it's based in British Columbia. So it's certainly a Canadian company, and it, its track record is it, it was really impressive to us. And if they were if they mm-hmm. were to do the same thing with the company that we have fifty percent ownership, we're we're going to be moving really well, like you know. And of mm-hmm. course, all the time. In our minds, both of our minds, of course, it's the sustainability of the fishery. It's an offshore, large commercial fishery. Okay. But people need to understand that clear water seafoods, as large as it is, and it has an international footprint in over 50 countries. Okay. So 50% ownership of this multi-billion dollar uh, fishing industry company, and it's based in BC, definitely going beyond. Uh, usually First Nations talk about impact benefit agreements, you know, and the IBAs and resource revenue sharing back. But this is equity ownership. This is a, a huge, a huge deal for First Nations people. And looking at that, that 50% ownership, what does that mean? To, for you and uh, the First Nations involved? Well, we become 50% owners. We have 50% of the authority on what's decided with the direction of the company. So, and we have half the seats on the board. So, like with this, like, you know, we acquire a company that sells annually uh, approximately 99 million pounds of seafood. So, and with that, as large as the uh, Clearwater Seafood Company is, as far as an offshore fishery, it only is uh, 1% of that fishery, of the offshore fishery. Certainly uh, not an issue with conservation or, you know, the species that we mostly fish is shellfish. And it is uh, fish uh, like the art of surf clam that has been fully developed by the company right from its uh, beginning to now. Like uh, it, it developed the industry. That's why Clearwater is in the Arctic surf clam fishery. Like I said, it's far-reaching. It's in a number of countries uh, throughout the world. It has its its logistics and and its distribution system very well constructed. Like at times we're able to say that we get uh, fish from the sea 
to a person's plate in Europe in 24 hours. So the efficiency of it is, uh, is amazing. But also the most important part of it is the quality of the product that we sell. Uh, countries like Japan and, and China, you know, are really sticklers on quality of food. Of course, we, we go through a, a number of tests and regulations that they have, and we pass those, and we're at the top of uh, their list as far as uh, buying product from us. So it's like the old business. It's supply and demand, but it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, and you're operating globally. And so it's a really global economy that we, we participate in, and it's, it's really fantastic to see Mi'kmaq people participating in a global business. Yes, well, because of our ownership of this company, we, we've automatically been, uh, become partners with the groups in uh, Argentina mm-hmm. and uh, Scotland you know, we, and Denmark. So uh, we, we, we develop and we fish with them and they fish products that, you know, that we share and that we're able to uh, achieve economies of scale. And uh, that way we're able to uh, fish uh, much more efficiently uh, with the partners that we have in Argentina, Denmark, and in uh, Scotland. Yeah, so 50% ownership means you got equal say on the board level. Uh, you, you have some say in the business planning model. And so you're definitely generating employment opportunities for people and uh, returning a really good return on investment and profit as well back to shareholders. So um, the, like I say, this is such an exciting time uh, as a yes. model for how to get involved as First Nations people. Um, now, when we see out east and we see um, uh, some of the uh, conflict over this moderate livelihood, you know, and, and so that moderate livelihood was uh, defined by the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, that the, the treaty right to fish, you know, and that goes back to the Marshall decision, which you had a hand in helping uh, get that victory at the Supreme Court level. The gray area was uh, nobody's defined what moderate livelihood looks like or the definition, and that's been the challenge going forward. And last fall, we saw a lot of uh, shocking things on TV and in the news about the violence and racism towards First Nations people when they were just trying to implement their moderate livelihood to go fish for lobsters. So we called it economic racism. What are your thoughts and views on that in terms of uh, First Nations trying to carry out their moderate livelihood fishing on the East Coast but we witnessed a lot of violence towards the Mi'kmaq fishers. I agree with everything that you said. Absolutely unacceptable. Like it is pure racism. That that's how I feel, and that's how I see it. You know, and that's that's how a lot of our people see it. I I feel that there's no other explanation. You know, and it's been happening for a long time, and it's just it's gotten worse because we're just tired of having the government. It just it's just not listening. It has its own thoughts based on you know. I'm really sorry to say it, but it's white supremacy. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Even they probably don't understand that. It's been ingrained so long that like you know it's. Uh, I mean, it, it's a really difficult uh, task to uh, to educate uh, the, the people, even the people that make the decisions for us, or the or the people that uh, are to implement or interpret the rights that we have. What they need to do is work with us, work with the communities. And work with them, work with member two, for example, who come up with our fishery rules, mm-hmm. our fishery guidelines that addresses conservation and sustainability. 
there is no way that we are affecting the sustainability and conservation of the fishery in Atlantic Canada. No way. We're absolutely so small that, you know, it, it hardly makes a difference on the overall outcome. Mm-hmm. So that's that's not the reason. The requirement to fish in seasons to us is, is like, it's like another obstacle being put there. What we find out, I mean, there's eight different lobster seasons in Nova Scotia itself. Not sure how many in the Atlantic, all the Atlantic. I'm sure there's more. Mm-hmm. But if you put them all together, like, you know, there, there's lobster fishing throughout the year, throughout the year mm-hmm. in the inshore, depending on where it's being fished. So the seasons, like, are kind of like, uh, you know, they're, they, they move. What the real reason is, is I guess for marketing. Now, we we haven't participated in any of that. You know, and we want to fish the way we have fished for centuries. You know, and that's when we feel it's the right time. Mm -hmm. And we know when, you know, we don't take the uh, females with eggs. We don't take like soft shells. We we understand that. You know, we've known that longer than anyone else. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and we we haven't caused any conservation issues ever, and we're 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 not going to. We're just asking the government to work with us mm-hmm. because they have a responsibility. They have a responsibility of making sure the conservation of the fishery is in place. We agree with that, yeah, and we want to do that. You know, but they have their own set of you know, implementation uh, in their own minds based on what they're used to doing. Mm -hmm. And that's not with our rights in mind. Yes, we'll let you. This is what the common saying is. Yes, we'll let you. We're trying to work with you to implement your fishing rights, but you have to fish in our seasons. You have to use our fisheries licenses. So the the government really is just not respecting your jurisdiction, the the Mi'kmaq's jurisdiction to issue their own licenses and permits and respecting your self-determination. They're saying, yeah, we'll help you implement moderate livelihood, but under our rules and under our way of doing things. And, uh, yes, they're they're not even listening to the uh, the decision of the Supreme Court of Canada, which is the supreme law mm-hmm. of the country. I mean, as from what I've learned, you know, and they they need to get their minds around to understanding that this is not for them to permit us to fish, but work with us to implement our right, our right. That's it. Yeah. And so to our listeners, on one hand, the multi-billion dollar deal with Clearwater gets First Nations as well in a multi-billion dollar industry globally, you know, through commercial licenses. That's one way of doing things since that's going to keep proceeding. And then now the other one is the implementation of this moderate livelihood decision from Supreme Court of Canada. That's so both. And so uh, that's the, the, the two things going on. But the point that our listeners need to see and feel and hear and get is that the moderate livelihood fishery piece has very minimal impact on the lobster overall fishery resource. Would you agree with that? Yes, of course. Of course, uh, that's absolutely true. You know, and uh, we, we, you know, we're a very smart, small part of the fishery. 
And part of the reason because not all of us that want to fish are out there. There's no room. Mm-hmm. There has to be room made. That's the other thing too. Like, like we fish for our livelihood fishery. We're in the same waters as someone else is there. You know, they were, they were put there by the government. Mm-hmm. The government caused this problem. So the government, the government has to fix it. There are two groups in one place. One has to leave. We are not leaving. The Mi'kmaqs are not leaving. We told the associations, we told DFO, we told anybody that wants to listen, we are not leaving. And at least they agree with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, but there is, and we also agree that the DFO, the government, has to do something, has to do something seriously, and that is to help make space in the waters mm-hmm. for us, because we're going there, because we have a right to be in those waters. Okay, we're going to come back to DFO, and we're going to talk about Department of Fisheries and Oceans and what's working, what isn't working, and what more should be done. To, to watch and respect our rights as First Nations people to fish and to implement that moderate livelihood piece. But I wanted to talk about the difference between the commercial licenses that Clearwater has and then the moderate livelihood licenses. You know, can you tell our listeners the difference, you know, wh- why there's a difference between the two? Well, right now, that not that, not that I know of, is that, that there isn't any moderate livelihood fisheries licenses. Only the ones that the, the DFO is trying to implement. What we have in the inshore right now is com, uh, communal, what they call the communal commercial licenses. So they're really like they're commercial li- licenses like any other commercial licenses in the fishery, except they coin them as communal. So they can't be like uh, sold by an individual or or owned by an individual, and it's owned by the community, and, and it's to be fished by community members, you know, or, or the community. So there is no inshore commercial fishery licenses that are livelihood. Okay. There's only like, like there's only like the commercial communal license uh, commercial licenses like anyone else. You know, we're we're trying to come up with community livelihood fishery licenses, as we call them, but they're to be developed by our communities with DFO working with the communities to be able to implement that. That's the work that needs to get done right now. So you've got Mm -hmm. already commercial licenses for clear water. That's one piece. But for the First Nations trying to exercise their right and implement the modern livelihood, that's the work that needs to get done between your jurisdiction and DFO, and that's that's what you're trying to get towards the community livelihood fishing licenses. Yes, okay. that are that are that are in the inshore. On the inshore, okay. Yeah, the Clearwater commercial license that are fished by Clearwater mm-hmm. are all offshore licenses. Ah, okay. I mean, the, the company itself, Clearwater, is not allowed into the inshore. Okay, so that's a key difference. There's differences there. Offshore licenses and then inshore licenses. Okay. Yes, yes. And the offshore is not to come into the inshore. Okay, so there's a lot of work to do then on defining that inshore piece, working with Mi'kmaq fishers and moderate livelihood. Yeah, but what Clearwater does is that 
through the buyers and the inshore, we buy lobsters and other shellfish products from the inshore. Now, on the lobster, of the total lobster caught in the inshore, Clearwater, on average, is able to purchase from the buyers about 3 or 4% of the total catch in the inshore. And this is what Clearwater purchases okay. as part of its operations. So we also don't have too much of a dent into the inshore fishery itself. Mm-hmm. But we would love to work with the inshore fishery. Okay, so there's there's more work to get done, no question. And yes. this, if you were talking to, and then now we know that Department of Fisheries and Oceans, you know, whose responsibility they created the issue and challenges and concerns and problems out there, have a bigger role to play. And just just today, there is a conf, you know, a report that comes out. You know, members of Parliament they're issuing conflicting reports on the contentious First Nations fishery issue, right? And that just came out. And and so there's more work to do within DFO and government to get this right in the implementation of the Marshall decision, moderate livelihood to fishing. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this so far? Yes, uh, DFO dropped the ball right from the day of the decision. It was caught literally with its, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say literally, but it was caught with its pants down, really. I remember like a, a senior official from DFO at the time and uh, she 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 has retired since, and and she she overheard one of the lawyers, uh, you know, about the, when the Marshall case came to them. And the lawyer said, "Don't worry about this. This is slam dunk. This is a slam dunk for us." You know? <laughs> so, but that, that that indicates to you that's indicative of how the attitude and the thoughts are at the uh, the government level. Well, even in, in the report today, Chief, uh, let me just read here. The, the committee report table in Parliament today does not define moderate livelihood, nor does it weigh in on efforts by successive federal governments to respond to the Marshall decision. And uh, so even although DFO has initiated programs to bolster First Nations participation in commercial fisheries since the Marshall decisions, there is so far no consensus regarding whether the Mi'kmaq and the Wastegik Treaty right to fish in pursuit of a moderate livelihood has been effectively and meaning, meaningfully implemented. And that's right in their report. So there's so much work to do. Yeah, well, the term uh, moderate livelihood came from the Supreme Court, you know, and uh, I guess there were, uh, I, I think they were kind of modernizing uh, from, from the word that's used in the treaty, the Treaty of 1760 61 is necessities necessities so they turned that into moderate livelihood you know and um, to to us it, it, it's certainly a, a living that is where we don't have to worry about looking after our families that's what a moderate livelihood is to me you know and uh, and, and and how it's defined, it, it should that should be left to the communities on how they want to implement their right to a livelihood fishery. That's right. So that's basically self determination in action, you know. Well, that's where we need to go. That's where we need to go. Yep. Like uh, all the communities, they have a right to do it. We have a right to do that, and that's that's part of the big answer for us is that uh, you know that we implement our right to govern ourselves. 
Exactly, because the point we've always made is that there's more than just uh, the, the, the government, the federal government powers in Canada and the provincial government powers in Canada. There's First Nations government powers in Canada, and that jurisdiction needs to be respected. You know, it's not just a federal government and provincial governments. You have First Nations governments. Our laws need to be respected in addition to federal law, provincial law, and that's the challenge we need to find the balance between those three governments going forward. Yes, indigenous law. You know, that's yeah. a, that's that's another one. That's another level. Not the third level, but another level of law. You know, exactly. that's, e- that's equal to the other yeah. laws. In fact, even, even stronger, if you're going to go to Aboriginal rights, Aboriginal title, you know, that's mm-hmm. that's even that that's even stronger than the treaties. You know, mm-hmm. so we we have a ways to go, like you're saying, yes, and there's a lot of educating to do, you know, uh with 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 the with the government and with the public. So if you had the 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 Department of Fisheries and Oceans right now with you, the Ministry of Fisheries and Oceans and listening to you, what would you say to the minister to say, this is what needs to get done to fix this? What would your words be to the minister of Department of Fisheries and Oceans right now? Well, we've been saying that for the last 20 years and this uh, present uh, uh, minister, uh, we've talked to her a number of times and how we would like to implement it. And that is that it, it is... It is the communities that have that decision on how they want to implement their livelihood fishery. And the minister and her government and her department needs to give authority to their people to negotiate and assist the communities in implementing their livelihood fishery plans. Okay. All right. So basically, the DFO is empower the negotiators at the table to to assist and, and recognize First Nations in the pursuit of the implementation of the moderate livelihood uh, under First Nations law and jurisdiction. And uh, that's the direction of government. They have a fiduciary crown trust obligation to do that. Yes. Okay. Now, I noticed as well in the report that the federal government have uh, appointed the University St. Anne President Alistair Surrett as a federal representative, to try and rebuild the trust between indigenous and commercial harvesters. Do you have any thoughts on that process and plan going forward? We were made aware of uh, the individual that uh, was doing this for the government, for DFO. I remember talking to the minister herself about this, and uh, I know she was uh, enthusiastic about doing this and uh, thinking that that would help resolving the problems that we're having but i had suggested to her that why not have an indigenous person with this person to do the study what was said to me was a good idea but nothing ever happened with it and i felt that like and i think in talking to some of the other dfo officials uh, there was indications that how you know how how it, that that's a conflict of interest that that uh, you're you're talking about uh What's best for uh, in implementing your right? Uh, you're in conflict. Like, wow. And we were we were thinking like even like maybe 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 wouldn't be a Mi'kmaq, but maybe it would be another indigenous person. Like maybe uh, uh, Senator Sinclair as an example. Not that we uh, we ever asked him, but that was uh, that was in my mind. The results were like the person that it was appointed by DFO uh, didn't get all the inf- information that would have been necessary for this, like and would have made a more complete report. 
I was asked, but I felt I didn't trust the person. You know, how can you talk to someone you don't trust them? Like, and even after talking to the government and telling, suggesting to them, maybe uh, this would be a better way of doing it. You know, that where you 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 would get more trust from from our people if they knew that was an indigenous person. Doesn't have to be Mi'kmaq as long as it was indigenous and that they were objective in their findings. You know, and then we would have we would have had more comfort. So uh, I'm not sure. Uh, how many indigenous people spoke to him, but I didn't. So there's still a lot of work to do, I guess, in terms of rebuilding the trust and relationship between commercial fishers and and, and the Mi'kmaq fishers. And the government. <laughs> the government did. And the, with the government as well, exactly. One thing, though, I, I feel like, you know, and from our discussions with the fisheries groups uh, back when we were talking, is that we we both don't trust the government. Well, again, that's the message going forward. In order to, before anybody tries to build anything, there must be a respectful relationship that's built between parties and between First Nations and the, and the government officials and in industry. Before you build anything, build a respectful relationship. Their actions should result in trust and do things that helps us trust yeah. you. That, that would be my comment. So, Chief Terry, you're part of a multi-billion dollar deal again, a fish company, 50% ownership creating jobs, creating wealth, doing a, a, a global business, you know, supplying uh, uh, seafood to Europe, to China, to Japan, good quality seafood. That's, that's awesome. That's inspiring. And then now we just talked about the challenges implementing the moderate livelihood in the Mi'kmaq fishers under First Nations jurisdiction as well. And the, the treaty right to fish in the Marshall District, Supreme Court of Canada, lots of work to do there. We've seen the violence, you know, the uh, when for Mi'kmaq fishers are trying to go out just to implement their moderate livelihood, right? And uh, we have to make sure that our listeners know that we don't promote violence. We don't want violence, but it's violence directed in energy towards Mi'kmaq fishers. And uh, we say that has to stop, especially when we're trying to just implement the right to fish. Now, in all of these challenges, in all of these, there's good movement, you know, on one hand. Uh, there's still some challenges. I always ask my uh, guests on the Akhmingu podcast this last question about hope. What gives you hope going forward? What gives me hope? It's the strength of our people and their resolve. You know, we have treaty rights. We have Aboriginal rights. And they're not going to go away. And there is no government ever that is going to take those away from us. So the hope is that we have those recognize and acknowledge and that we're able to build our societies based on our rights. That's my hope. That's a hopeful message, you know, in terms of uh, the strength of our people and our resolve to implement our Aboriginal rights and title and our treaty rights. And uh, to all our listeners, that's a strong message because knowing our treaty relationship with the Crown it was always one of peaceful coexistence and mutual respect between First Nations people and all of our rest of our Canadian brothers and sisters to mutually benefit from the land and resource wealth we're sharing. And uh, Chief Terry, are there any last comments from yourself before we thank you again for coming on our Akamegmik podcast? Yeah, I did want to say, and actually, if I really appreciate you uh, put me on your podcast uh, and allow me to uh, talk to the country, you know, particularly the Indigenous people on. Uh, what we're doing and uh, how important it is to uh, 
keep the government's uh, feet to the fire because uh, you know it, it needs to get done and if if we can get help from our brothers across the country uh, it would be very much appreciated to uh, help keep the pressure on and that the government finally realizes that it's a lot better to work with indigenous people instead of trying to tell them what to do. Powerful statement and strong message. Chief Terry Paul, thanks so much for coming on the Akamemu podcast. Thank you, Nessie. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemu podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations.